with your host, Spike Collins. Yes, it's me. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. I'm happy to be here, too. Keep clapping. Clap for the miracle. How would we know that we wanted the miracle if you didn't keep playing this clip of people clapping? Welcome to My Fellow Americans. I am literally... Spike Cohen. Thank you for joining us this Wednesday evening. I'm so happy to be back. Uh, I'm actually additionally happy because thanks to this being a holiday weekend coming up, uh, I actually am not going anywhere this weekend for the first time since like February. So I'm pretty excited about that. I'm excited to stay home over the weekend like a normal human being. So you can uh, join me on that. I'll probably get stir crazy and end up live streaming 15 times. So you'll get to enjoy that. This is a Muddied Waters media production. Check us out everywhere on all social media applications and venues, on all podcasting platforms, on our website, Muddy Waters Media, and of course on anchor.fm slash muddiedwaters, where you can leave messages for us, and we will play them and respond to them uh, every Tuesday on the Muddy Waters of Freedom. Uh, and of course, you can go to our website, muddywatersmedia.com, for this and every single episode. Be sure to like us, follow us, five-star us, whatever it is that you do on whatever it is you're watching or listening to this on, be sure to do that thing. And if it's on YouTube, hit the bell. Hit the bell. It doesn't count if you don't hit the bell because you have to have it so that your phone blows up with notifications every time I decide to go live. I want that for you, please. Uh, And be sure to share this right now. The last thing that I want is for you and your closest loved ones to miss out on a 
roughly hour-long libertarian podcast on a Wednesday evening. That is a terrible thing. I don't want that to happen to you or anyone you care about. Be sure to give the gift of Spike today. Kids love it. This episode, of course, is brought to you by the Libertarian Party Waffle House Caucus, the fastest-growing waffle-related caucus in this or any other political party in human history. If you want to become a member, go to the Facebook group Libertarian Party Waffle House Caucus and become a member today. And if you want to get some sweet, sweet Waffle House Caucus gear, uh, go to muddywatersmedia.com store and you can get some buttons and we have shirts and uh, I think we have hats now. It's I there if you really want this, it's on there. Be sure to go there right now. Uh, the Gravy King. Nug of Knowledge. Uh, Nug of Knowledge is not your everyday CBD supplier. A portion of the profits go to help end the war on drugs. They also have a compassionate use program that donates medicinal hemp products to veterans and people with disabilities who cannot afford these natural remedies. People who use it, many of them say that it helps with joint pain, stress relief, or a much-needed pick-me-up. If you want to buy smokable CBD, that's what they call that now, uh, be sure to go to nugofknowledge.com. And use checkout code SPIKE, that's S-P-I-K-E, for 10% off. Joe Soloski. Joe Soloski is running for governor of Pennsylvania as a libertarian. Joe Soloski is the key to Pennsylvania's success. And if you want to help him in his run, uh, go to Joe Soloski, that's J-O-E-S-O-L-O-S-K-I dot com to see how you can today. Mudwater, the most aptly named product that we will ever sponsor on this program because we're called Muddy Waters. If you woke up today and you drank your coffee and you said, my God, I hope to never drink coffee again, I want an alternative to coffee. Something that's made with masala chai, cacao, mushrooms, turmeric, sea salt, cinnamon, and literally nothing else. Well, folks, I have some fantastic news for you. Because if you go to muddywatersmedia.com mud, you can literally buy all of that and just that for the low, low price of I, I, well, I forget what it is, but it's not expensive and uh, you can definitely try it. It, people ask me, does it taste good? It tastes like a coffee alternative. I don't think coffee tastes good either, but I like this stuff and uh, it has just enough caffeine to get me this wired, but no more wired than I currently am. So that tells you something. It's just enough to be able to run a pithy libertarian podcast in the evening. So go today, muddywatersmedia.com slash mud, and get your mud water. Uh, And of course, oh, Jack Casey. Jack Casey has these two books, and he desperately asks us to make fun of them every time that we promote it. So here I am again doing that. Uh, This first book, The Royal Green, is of course about a ring that is, I'm not sure what it's doing there. His second book, Silver Throned, uh, is about a, apparently a butterfly with a knife that has a snake wrapped around it, which is appropriate for the kind of things that this man would write. Uh, And his third book, Crowned by Gold, is coming out this summer. Uh, If you buy enough of them, he will rename it to literally whatever you want it to. So you can be a part of crowdsourcing what this book is called by spending money, by going to theroyalgreen.com. And of course, Chris Reynolds, personal injury attorney, Chris Reynolds, attorney at law. If you find yourself personally injured in the state of Florida, I have some great news for you. I know someone that you can contact who will help you sue and maybe get money. I don't know. I don't know how much money you're going to get. But if you go to chrisreynoldslaw.com, you can get possibly money. I cannot legally guarantee that. And I certainly wouldn't because I know 
risk avoidance. I'm certainly not going to tell you that, but Chris could certainly possibly tell you how much he can get you. If you go to chrisreynoldslaw.com, uh, he can help you sue people in Florida. But don't, like, come to him with, like, a legitimate reason. Don't go and, you know, because someone yelled at you or something. Like, have a legitimate reason for suing someone. Um, I'd like to, uh, the intro and outro music to this and every episode of My Fellow Americans comes from the amazing Joe Davi. That's J-O-D-A-V-I. Check him out on Facebook, on SoundCloud. Uh, go to his Bandcamp. Go to joedavimusic.bandcamp.com. Uh, and you can buy his entire discography. It costs like $25. Some of the best music you'll ever hear. Uh, and uh, and uh, so thank you so much to Joe Davi. Uh, I would like to thank someone for the water I'm drinking on this episode, but we still don't have any water in this house. And I'm not going to thank the Myrtle Beach Municipal Water System for tap water because they pay charge too much and it's not very good. And I'm not 100% sure that it's safe to drink. So instead, I'm just not going to drink anything on this episode. So that's what that is. Maybe tomorrow I'll remember to go to the store and get some water. Shout out to Tamron Turks' mom. As always, folks, I have a, a fantastic guest tonight. Uh, she is the Professor Emerita, uh, distinguished Professor Emerita, which means that uh, she's retired, um, for those who don't know what that meant, uh, of economics and of history. Uh, she's also the Professor Emerita of English and Communications, adjunct in classics and philosophy at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Uh, she has written 24 books. 24, not one, not even 23 24 books and some 400 academic and I don't know if I've written 400 tweets yet. 400 academic and popular articles on everything from economic history, rhetoric, philosophy, statistical theory, economic theory, feminism, queer studies, liberalism, ethics, and law. This woman is, I already, this woman is way smarter and more learned than me. I'm already somewhat intimidated, but we're going to have a fantastic conversation about supply chains, and I can't wait to get started. Ladies and gentlemen, my fellow Americans, please welcome to the show Professor Deirdre McCloskey. Hi. Hi. How are you, dear? I'm, I'm here in, in, in I'm here in Chicago where I live and and it's not widely known. You you can see behind me that's the Grand Canyon of the Colorado. Yes. And it's not widely known that there's a branch of that in Chicago. <laughs> there's a branch of the Grand Canyon in Chicago. Yep, as you can easily see behind me. <laughs> yes, no, it's beautiful. And you have an amazing view of it. The, uh, Professor Emerita, that must pay very well for you to have canyon oh, yeah. property in, in Chicago like that. Yeah, with that and uh, a dollar, you can buy a cup of coffee. <laughs> well, folks, uh, be sure to comment with your thoughts and questions. And Deirdre and I will tell you if you are right or wrong. Now, Deirdre, before we get started, I just want to ask you, I mean, you clearly are an expert in many different things. Uh, whenever I have someone on for the first time, I always ask them, what is it that got you into this? I mean, obviously, it's not your line of work anymore. You have, have done like me and moved on into retirement. So we're now both professional retirement advocates. Uh, but you know, when you were doing this, what was it that got you uh, into this these different fields of study? What, what led you to well, want to become a well, professor? I, you know, I, I was, uh, uh, when I went to college a long time ago, I was going to be a major in history, you know, but I found that if you if you majored in history, you had to read an awful lot. And that that really didn't that <laughs> interfered with my social life. And yes. at the time I was a, I was a socialist, okay. uh, as lots of people are when they're when they're teenagers. And I thought, well, well 
what other major would be good? Right. And economics sounded exactly right because I can help yes. the poor by, by by bossing them around, yes. and uh, and and it 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 and it didn't involve a lot of reading of long tedious books. So now instead I write them. So. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say when you said, I, man, I, I hate reading. It really gets in the way of my social life. And I thought, well, That's writing right. clearly doesn't. Clearly you're well, able to attend I, parties while penning your next novel. That's right. Well, I, I and, and then as I, as I got older and, and, and matured and in uh, intellectual life, I, I realized that economics by itself is not enough. That as it's been well said that somebody who's only an economist won't be a very good economist because an economist, after all, an academic economist is kind of a social philosopher, or at least ought to be. Right. So I, it's like what, what my heroine May West said, I was snow white, but I drifted. <laughs> now, is there a specific, I mean, you are in uh, the you or you were teaching in the uh, into uh, in the University of Illinois in Chicago. Are you a yeah. proponent or, of the Chicago School of Economics or of another yeah. one? Or yeah, you sure? I was I was for um, I, I my first job was twelve years at the University of Chicago as a professor there, and I was tenured there, um, and that that was in the in the glory days. From nineteen sixty eight to eighty, I was there. And that, gosh, it was a, a wonderful place to be a young economist because it was extremely creative. And Milton Friedman was a colleague, and it was altogether thrilling. Um, and then I spent 19 years at the at the University of Iowa, go Hawks. And then uh, my last 15 years of uh, um, teaching at the University of Illinois at Chicago. But as I went through that, I kept getting, so to speak, broader and broader and having more interest. So as you mentioned, I was also a, a professor of English. And, and you know, it, it, it turns out that to understand the economy, to really understand it, you've got to understand novels. You've got to understand philosophy. You have to understand people. And since I've always been an academic and haven't ever had a real job, the only way I could find out about people was to read read uh, books about them. Right. I like this, what you've said so far. I was a socialist, <laughs> as most kids are, and then, yeah. or as you are wont to do when you're a kid. I was actually a neocon when I was a kid. I was, I was that kid. Um, but, uh, and then uh, I'm, I was an academic, which means I, I didn't have a real job. So this is, I think, going to be a really good uh, interview. <laughs> uh, so I, I want to ask you, so the reason I have you on, uh, besides the fact that you're a, a lovely, dear woman, uh, is that uh, we, I want to talk with you about supply chains. Um, and sure. for those, I guess let's let's start with the most basic things. Many people have heard the term supply chain. Can you give us a kind of brief definition of for those for the uninitiated? What is a supply chain, and and what does it do? How how does it function? Well, uh, you, you know, know it's it, it's not it's not actually a term in economics. Mm -hmm. It's a term in 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 the world of commerce and and manufacturing right. and so forth. And it's the rather obvious idea that in order to make an automobile, you got to have some steel. 
and you got to have some, I don't know, some plastic and some wires and some computers, and those go into making the automobile. So what a supply chain is, is a way of talking about the recipe for making an automobile or making a pencil or making, making, a, making a restaurant meal right. or anything. And sort of, it kind of looks back um, behind the, uh, the automobile that comes out of the factory and says, okay, now what does this need? And then what does, what does the steelmaker need? So it, it, it's, it's, it's a mistake actually in economic analysis because the one recipe, which is what you can find out about if you ask the, the person making the automobile or the, or the meal what, what she bought to make these things, she can give you an answer and there it is. And then you've got that, 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 that recipe is not the only way to do that product. You see what I mean? So there, the, the, the main or a main theme in economics is that there are substitutes for everything. There's more than one way to skin a cat is the proverb. And so it's not, you hear a lot about supply chains and people talk very wisely and think, oh boy, I, I understand the economy. But they don't really understand it unless they understand that there are many, many different ways of making the same product. Right. Well, and in fact, that's even in, in implicated in how we talk about it, right? So we talk about the you supply bet. chain as though it is this that's very good metal you're thing that is involved when in fact it's actually a, a supply uh, environment that's being created. And that's very good. That I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna steal that expression from you. Yeah, the, this chain idea acts as though it's rigid coefficients, yep. They, yep. which is how we express it mathematically. And it's just that's all there is. You can only do it one way. You got to make yep. make it this one way. And as you say, it's more an environment or a market or a field of cooperation, or a uh, social uh, web. And if you, if you understand the economy that second way, the field of cooperation, then you, you're, you're free from, from the, the, this idea of a rigid uh, formula. Now, here's, a, here's, an, here, here's an application of this. Okay. During the Second World War, both Britain and the United States, and for that matter, Germany, when it had an air force, engaged in strategic bombing. As they said to themselves, there's a supply chain of, say, tanks going from Germany to the, uh, the, the Eastern Front or the Western right. Front. And if we drop bombs on the, on the, on, on the railway junctions, that'll stop them, Right. And this idea of strategic bombing famously didn't work very well. In fact, after the war, there was a strategic bombing survey by a bunch of economists. And they said, well, was this, this bombing campaign in which we killed actually hundreds of thousands of civilians, 
right. maybe more. Um, it, was this a smart thing to do? And the economists looking at the facts, looking at the data, found that the Germans um, um, uh, substituted famously the the uh, the, the, uh, the the Soviet Union moved <laughs> much of its war production east of the Urals, away from where the German bombers could get to it. So this is not just some academic idea, because then they tried strategic bombing in Vietnam. And it didn't work there either. Right, right, right. So it's really crucial to know that it's a social mechanism. It's not a chain. Well, it is it is supply meeting demand. So if the demand is still right. there, the supply is going to find a way around to meet it. And if you can look at it as a that's, social phenomena rather than this rigid thing, then that's really exactly right. The, the, it's it's the it's the search mechanism that both consumers and, and producers are doing all the time. I mean, anyone who's actually been in the business world, which, by the way, as I mentioned, doesn't include me, knows that there's this constant um, uh, edgy searching. Of course, we, we're all consumers, and and I like to shop. And the it, shopping is an inventive activity. It's you're 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 deciding what inputs you need for your household. I just bought, for example, one of those kind of stick vacuum cleaners that have become so popular. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. In, instead of the big one, then they have batteries and so on. Instead of a cord, I just bought one. You know, so I'm I'm making I'm <laughs> I'm substituting away from a a carpet sweeper, which is an old fashioned technology I, I have, and I'm moving to this newer way of doing it. I'm substituting, and so consumers are, producers are, so the whole idea of a chain a rigid way of doing things is against um well it's against co common sense and and correct economics is common sense well and i mean even speaking to like the calcul the economic calculation problem that uh, ludwig von mises posited that you know exactly. the reason that a cashless society or a society that doesn't have some kind uh, of price inputs can't work uh, is because there's no way to determine what the value is for any specific thing which means you can't do anything cuz you need that to supply every single aspect of any single thing that's being done whether it's a bridge or a road or a building or a right. sandwich for and, that matter and and that that you're you're the you're you're also correct there um that idea of of uh, the rigid coefficients was believed by economists they were mainly english in the early 19th century and was adopted by by karl marx and engels and has become kind of doctrine on the left in economics. So Marxist economists keep trying to force the economy into this fixed, as they, we call it, fixed coefficient way of looking at the world, this supply chain way of looking at the world. And um, it's a, you know, I've, I have lots of Marxist economist friends and I, I keep arguing with them, dears, 
<laughs> you, you should abandon this idea. Structure is not what determines the economy because the structure is chosen. It's humans dancing around. You can think of the, the, yep. the, uh, the economy as a big dance floor, yep. <laughs> which people are dancing and changing partners and so on. And it's a, as uh, Hayek said, it's a spontaneous order. And it's not this lockstep thing that you can easily drop bombs on to stop it. See, if, right. if you have a mechanical view of the economy, like the supply chain ideas, then you throw a wrench into the machine and you stop it, right? So you can, you can do successful strategic bombing. Um, or, or indeed, the, um, an early example of this was the um, the blockade uh, of Napoleon by by the by, by, by the English Navy in the Napoleonic War, which again was a way to try to stop his economy by, well, in this case, uh, having ships attack it, and you know there there there, there were uh, substitutes. Well, and, and, you know, taken to its logical conclusion, of course, uh, and, and we're largely just agreeing with each other here. So I do want to get into the into the, uh, um, the the subject of how this works in specific applications. If you go to the logical conclusion of this, if supply and the, the chain or the, the mechanism by which it's fed is this fixed rigid thing, then that yeah. means the economy would be the same now that it was ever and that there wouldn't be well, any true. innovations. There simply couldn't be innovations because supply always, the way that things are supplied never changes. It's the, it, yes, that this way of looking at the world, the non-substitute, really non-economic way of looking at the world is right. ill-adapted to thinking about uh, progress. And uh, since the main thing that's happened in the last couple of centuries in uh, the world's economy is a really, is, as the English say, gobsmacking progress. Um, your ancestors and mine were unspeakably poor. Yeah. Um, and, and now here we are <laughs> on the internet and, yeah. <laughs> you know, buying st uh, stick vacuum cleaners with batteries and so on. We're, we're so um, advanced and that indeed is a um, is a matter of the dance, um, uh, the, the, a matter of, as, as we say in Austrian economics, human action, yep. which is I'm a I'm a I, 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 I'm a Christian I'm an Episcopalian, and I think of it in terms of free will. Um, I just wrote a paper saying. It's which is the title is approximately free will goes with free markets. Mm -hmm. And that'll that'll drive the theologians who are mostly socialists crazy. <laughs> well, you know, you can apply it. It's the invisible hand of the free market. And if, if there's it a, is. a theological and, and way to it, talk it, about it. It's it's I think we ought to stop talking about the invisible hand because it irritates people without informing them. Right. It sounds um, like magic. Yeah. And in fact, Adam Smith only used it twice in his being the only two, the only two books he wrote. By the way, I've written all these books. I I certainly trade them for the two that he wrote. 
<laughs> but but um, in fact, in the two play in the in one in the wealth of nations and in the theory of moral se- se- sentiments, he only uses this image once for each book, and, and they're not used in the same way. So it's it's not because it it makes people think that we free market types are kind of spiritualists and yeah. we believe that it just happens and God makes it happen and so on. no 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 it's it it's it, it, it's a spontaneous order the way language is a spontaneous order or music you know would you like central planning of rock music no I don't think anyone would. And the, the the development of rock music is a spontaneous order. Yeah, I it, it's I was just talking about this with someone. Um, they were uh, they were talking about how in a debate uh, they were asked about healthcare, and they t- yeah. started talking about the in- invisible hand of the market, and everyone got very upset. And I said, well, here's why they got upset. They don't know what you're talking about. It sounds like you're yeah. saying we're going to take your healthcare and replace it with magic. And, and it, it's, it's, <laughs> you know, that's, there's no explanation. If you don't yeah, that's suss right. out that's right. that's what right. that means, right. then you're getting nowhere, that's and right. you can spend that time in far better pursuit. So uh, speaking of healthcare, let's talk yeah. about an example of where the supply chain or supply phenomena, whatever you want to call it, uh, works in. Uh, vaccines. Uh, we yeah. have seen uh, in the last year, uh, a year ago, uh, just over a year ago, we were told about a virus that none of us had ever heard about. It was a novel sure. virus. And within a matter right. of, of weeks, there were uh, uh, vaccines that were undergoing trials, yeah. uh, and yeah. which were <laughs> very effective, especially considering many of them were the first attempt at a, at a vaccine for it by these companies. Tell us how this supply chain works into, for example, the creation and, and, and distribution of vaccines. Well, you know, you, you have to be methodical in, in thinking up a, a vaccine. And <laughs> what, what was astonishing about this is that the day after or the week after, within very short order of, of these companies getting, or, or academic institutions, um, getting the, the gene map from the Chinese right. of the virus, they had vaccines. Now, as you said, they had to, you know, they're being regulated by governments. Right. And so they were not free to just start producing the stuff and in fact that would be kind of dangerous to just kind of randomly start making them yeah, drugs yeah, yeah. out right but I, I i don't think it's the the government that should be doing the certification of course. but in any case this is amazing how fast we've gotten this um uh you know we've been lo- lo- looking for a uh, a a vaccine for aids for 30 or 40 years without success right. Yep. Um, and, and and polio. I remember the days of polio when I was a kid. You know, every summer there'd be this terrible polio epidemic, and it took a long time. They started trying to get a vaccine for polio in the 1930s, and it took forever. Okay, but what's unfortunate then is this rigid supply chain way of thinking says, well, okay, now the government will take over the distribution. And of course, we need so much to go to Michigan, so much to go to Virginia, and so much to, you know, California, and this goes to Chicago, and this goes to Memphis. And 
that's not how to do it. <laughs> what we should have done, and, and actually it's starting to happen, is handed it over to to, to the drugstores, or for that matter, e- even earlier in the in the supply, shall we call it the supply process, allow the drug companies to sell it to anyone they want. Um, in that case, you know, we wouldn't be allocating uh, um, these vaccines by this kind of crazy process. I got my first shot. I have, I've had to in Indiana because I was down in Bloomington, Indiana, Indiana, helping my sister take care of my mom who was dying. She actually died about three months ago, but I was down there and I got my first shot then. Then I come back to Chicago where I live after mom died. And here I am. And I think, well, I'd better get the second one. I couldn't get it in Chicago. (laughs) I had to. The plan was finally I had to go back to Indiana to get the shot. Now, this is crazy. This is this is local. This is not how to if if we allocated um, bread this way or I don't know anything else you want to name, we would be very hungry. But. Uh, so, but but by now, I must say they they it's it's they have enough of these shots that this impulse to control and centrally plan is fading. And I actually got my second shot at Walgreens here in Chicago. Well, that's good, and you know, some of this is because thankfully. It appears as though, anyway, you have to get the the two shots and you shouldn't need them moving on. But if this were something you needed regular boosters, they'd have to come up with a way that, you know, up to 320 some odd million Americans, 330 million Americans would be able to get this every year, every few months. But this this is not really a big problem Um, in the sense that if you if you leave it to the market, of course, that irritates our, our socialist friends but if you say if you lead it to if you leave it to ordinary um, business ordinary suppliers like the drug stores it wouldn't be that much of a problem to get 330 million people vaccinated three three four times a year if you needed to right. turns out actually I saw something in, in the paper this morning that they think actually that these vaccines are going to last for some years, which would be right. great, because mm-hmm. after all, with the flu, every year we have to do a, a new uh, vaccine. Right. Yeah. Um, so, so, but it, but you know, the, the way to do it is the way we do it with the flu: let the private companies do it for a price. And it's not as if this the uh, this uh, um, COVID nineteen or the flu are orphan drugs. That is a problem, and I'm concerned about it. It's not that it's a really small disease um, that only has a couple hundred people who have it, and so it's not profitable for the companies to do it. This is not the case for COVID or for flu. Uh, It's very, it can be very profitable to just sell the stuff. Right, exactly. Yeah, I, I get a monthly, I have MS. And so I yeah, get a yeah. monthly infusion 
Um, and it's not cheap. Thankfully, I have insurance. Um, but it's also something that I think maybe a couple hundred thousand people are taking on a monthly yeah. basis, as opposed to this is something that would be hundreds of millions. So there's no reason that they couldn't, on an economy of scale, make money and still provide it of affordably course. to of people course. that need it. And, and insurance companies would cover it. Uh, there would be municipal health systems that would cover it. There would be private charities that would cover it. And by adding that price signal and being yeah. able to supply it where it's most needed, then you would That's be right. able to you'd be able That's to right. provide it a lot more easily. Um, yeah, and, and and in fact, if in in the matter of, um, of of COVID, if you're worried about the poor, and I am, I I told you I'm a Christian, um, then you give the poor people um, uh, vouchers, yeah. and you and you make people like me pay more. That's fine with me. I'd be willing to pay a couple hundred dollars easily. Well, actually, more to if I had to, but you you wouldn't have to if you. If you evoke, you call out these um, uh, these um, motivations of self-interest. Right, right. So how let's is, talk about. But let me ask you something. How is the infusion sure. working? Oh, it works great. I've been stable ever since I've been on it. I went from having a, a relapse every month to month and a half, which is a very, very aggressive case of MS, to uh, I haven't had a relapse since I've been on it uh, in uh, summer of 2017. I've been stable. That is terrific. Well, Thank great. You. And a perf thank you. And a perfect example of what we're talking about: innovations in supply and and, and meeting demand. There was a demand on the market for effective treatments for MS. It used to be when right. you were diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, they would tell you about the types of things that can happen to you if you have MS, and when those things would happen, they would line you up with occupational therapists and and yeah. uh, people to fit you for a wheelchair or canes or whatever, yeah. and and the, yeah. all these different things. And they basically manage your decline as you decline sure. from MS. And hopefully your MS wasn't very aggressive. And if you're someone like me where your MS was very aggressive, that decline was going to be sharp and pretty extreme. Now, yeah. we've now gone to the point uh, because of the the demand and the price uh, inputs and, and price incentives that were there, that there are now treatments that, yes, they were very expensive, but they're much less expensive to insurance companies and patients than managing someone's decline and having to get yeah. wheelchair accessible vans and having to Absolutely. retrofit your home for disability, not to mention the yeah. loss of income and all these other things. Well, as a result uh, of that, yeah. go ahead. Yeah, well, it's the same thing with AIDS, the AIDS uh, cocktail. Yep. You know, and, it, and it, it, it's it's really important to hitch the interests of the companies. Now, look, on the other hand, I think it's a terrible scandal that that people in the United States are not allowed to buy drugs anywhere else. Essentially. Yes. Mm -hmm. And that's just loony. Um, yep. it, if you're in a debate about healthcare with a uh, person on the left, um, I, I suggested you bring up that case because oh, yeah. it's so simple. You say, well, there is one market solution we could have, and it would be allow people to buy drugs in Canada or Mexico or France, wherever mm -hmm. they want. And your friend on the left will have a hard time arguing against that. You can't say, oh, those unreliable Canadians are going to poison us. Well, <laughs> come on, stop it. Uh, especially <laughs> and, when and, some and, of those drugs, 
especially when some of those drugs are made over there and then shipped over here. Exactly. So you're literally exactly. just paying for the, 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 the patent protections here. Exactly. It's, it's shocking how much cheaper drugs are in Canada and still more in India where a lot of them are made. Yeah, let's let's talk about India, because that's actually a big uh, factor in this in this some of the debates that are going on with vaccines. Um, Can you talk to us about why uh, India is so pivotal when it comes to supply for uh, vaccines and and, and what's happening there? Well, I'm not an expert on India, although I love India. I'm I'm a cricket fan. (laughs) <laughs> which is you know kind of crazy, but I I love English cricket, and so do the Indians. So <laughs> Indian and Pakistani cab drivers in Chicago, I always get into a conversation with them about uh, <laughs> about cr- cricket. I think it's probably that India is good in educating uh, engineers and uh, other highly skilled people on a kind of mass scale. And these people don't have fancy jobs. So they go go work in these drug companies, I guess. That would be just, that'd be my first uh, first hypothesis. The danger, of course, in in allowing um, the Indian uh, uh, COVID to just go crazy is that if we allow it in Brazil and the United States and India to go crazy, it mutates. It has more and more of a chance to mutate. Yeah. Yeah. And so one of the things that, and this is something shared by both economic nationalists and this sort of new brand of of woke fairness advocates, uh, is the idea that, you know, government should be stepping in and deciding where things are made, who gets what. And yeah. basically ignoring the existence of supply and demand needs and, and, and the market yeah. in general. Well, well, my my look, in the last three centuries, intellectuals in Europe have had three really big political ideas. The first one was was, was liberalism. The the, uh, the uh, Adam Smith called it the obvious and simple system of natural liberty, and that was new because in agricultural societies such as we had, hierarchy was the rule of the day. Right, uh, and you know you were born to be a you were born as a milkmaid. You stayed as a milkmaid. The the next one they, these smart people thought up was nationalism in the early 19th century, especially. And in the middle of the 19th century, socialism. So those are the three, liberalism, nationalism, and socialism. And I'm fond of saying, if you like nationalism, say in in making stuff, and you like socialism, have Washington in charge of making the stuff, Maybe you'll like national socialism. <laughs> <laughs> it works very well. It's a great track record with national socialism. Oh, yeah. It was a wonderful system. And, yeah. and it was so peaceful. Yes. That was that was the, the hallmark of national socialism. It's just how darn peaceful it was. That's my favorite part. Oh, peaceful. So, so right. let's talk about – so 
the people that are, are advocating, for example, there have been some articles and some advocacy that's happened where people are calling for the United States to supply the world with vaccines, to provide yeah. vaccines. And of course, their arguments are in some ways understandable. As you said, the longer this virus is out and spreading around, it can mutate sure, sure. and reach, become something possibly yeah. worse or more yeah, something. Or, or something that yeah. is not. Yeah, yeah but, but it. It, 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 it doesn't have to be the government, but does it? Right. I mean, look, the, these vaccines are not all that hard to make, fortunately. Yeah. Um, they, aren't, they aren't intrinsically very expensive. And so if you just allow the, the drug companies to make them wherever they make them, India or, or uh, France or in Germany or the United States, wherever they make them, and just sell them on a, on a profit-making basis, They'll supply the world rather easily. And what's remarkable about this, thank God, this situation we have, is that new vaccines keep coming out. I mean, I've I've been very impressed by this. I don't know how many there are now, but six or seven or eight different vaccines at various stages of trials. And, of course, the the Food and Drug Administration slowed down. The, the spread of the vaccines in a sinful way, but still they're getting through this. So I think you could, you could again, depend on the market to do this. Now, look, if there's a big pile, however bad the idea was that the government owns, yeah. then I, I, you know, I don't want to throw it away. And you might as well hand it over to the Indians. I, that's okay with me. I don't mind it uh, too much. Because, yeah. look, our, our friends on the left are always talking about externalities right? and imperfections in the market. They just love to talk about them. And there, there aren't very many that are really significant. But one that is, is a plague. Now, this one is not the Black Death which right. killed a third of the population of Europe. And it's not, not even the 1918 flu, which was worse than what we have. So there, I, I, my, 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 my other libertarian friends, a lot of them say, look, we've grossly overdone um, our panic about this thing. But still, um, <laughs> there's a case for coercion to make every child be vaccinated for measles, for example. Right, right. I mean, I don't have too much of a problem with that. Um, uh, Your liberty goes as far as my nose. You aren't at, being a free person doesn't mean you're free to punch me in the nose. Right, of course. Nor is being a free person give you a right to blow COVID-19 up my nose. Right. So there's a case there. As my friends, um, uh, my other friends, my my, my libertarian friends say, it, it has been overblown, but still. Well, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think then in those types of situations where there's a gray area, because it's like, well, you know, yeah. to what extent should my actions be limited to potentially 
protect you. Yeah. Now, if it's yeah, yeah. the common cold, obviously no. If yeah, it is, no, no. Uh, yeah. you know, right. if it's if it's you know the Black Death, then yes, we've got a case here. You know, we exactly need to have right. those conversations about depending on the, the 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 virulence and the the seriousness of the illness itself. To what extent is just ex, you know existence is that infringing well, upon potentially someone else's life or safety? See what we do with the flu. We do not compel people to uh, have right. flu, flu shots. Right. Now, old people like me have a very strong incentive to get a flu shot, mm. which, by the way, c- compared with these uh, uh, COVID-19 vaccines, it, it, it varies, of course, from year to year. Yep. <laughs> They're not very effective. No. They only protect you about 50 percent of the time. Right. right. Whereas these darn things are up over 90. Um, but okay, um, and you can you, you you can rely on a certain amount of self protection. In fact, I think that as a result of this craziness we've had since uh, last year, we're going to get like the East Asians are about masks, and I think that you're going to find that a lot of old people, especially, are going to wear masks in the in in the winter when they're in a crowded situation. And you, you understand that that's a, that, that this, this coerced mask wearing, which mm-hmm. bothers some of my friends, um, has, pre- has almost eliminated influenza. <laughs> in, in the year before last, you know, 30 or 40,000 people, mainly old people, died of influenza every year. Right. This year, it was something like, I don't know, I can't remember the figure, but 2,000 compared with 30 or 40. And that's because people were wearing masks and washing their hands and so forth. So some of that, I think, will become a habit, which will not be a bad thing. We're, you know, we're, we're, we're protecting ourselves. And then inadvertently, we're also protecting other people. Yeah, I think, and this is what I've said from the beginning. I think that people need to be able to judge their relative risk and uh, yeah. and make and 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 their comfort right. and perception, and, and be able to make choices accordingly. I think that that's yeah, a, I agree a good thing to I do. I agree. As in, it, but it, it sort of depends on the virulence of the of the spillover. As you say, in the case of the Black Death, I'm willing to let the state do a lot of coercion. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, if something kill- – well, here's what I say. If something is like the black – it's killing – you know, a th- has a 30% fatality rate, I don't think the state's going to have to step in. I think the vast majority of people are going to be like, I'm not going outside until this is taken care of. <laughs> and if I do point. go outside, I'm going outside in a bio suit. I think even in well, that situation, well, the that's right. And if probably if, wouldn't even if, have to do anything. Yeah, and if someone tries to come into their house, they'll they'll beat him with sticks. <laughs> yeah, that's my, what I mean. My, I, yeah, I think yeah. no, I think there would be a lot of mob justice. Like, hey, that guy's not wearing a bio suit, and just beat him <laughs> down because you know he's going to kill us all. So no, I, yeah. I think that people are able to to the, the vast majority of people are able to competently judge risks far better than a centrally so planned organization. And the proof of that is in the early days of this virus, where the CDC was not allowing testing for COVID, which allowed it to spread out of control. And then you had state yeah. health officials who were ordering, the, putting COVID patients in nursing homes and mental health facilities, where the people yeah, were the that, most likely yeah. to contract it and die from it. So clearly that was that a great idea. Work. Yeah, fantastic yeah, in fact, idea. In, in fact, in all these, these, these rich countries like uh, Britain and the United States and so forth, 
a very high percentage of the deaths have been in uh, care homes, as they call yeah. them in Britain. Yeah, because it was really smart to put the patients there, even though the, even though the the people that ran yeah, the facilities them all together, get so them all together, just go ahead other. and just get it taken care of quickly. I, you know, and and yeah. the, and the people running these facilities are saying, we don't have the protocols in place to protect yeah, our residents. Exactly. What are you well, doing? My, my my mom, the one who just died. Mm-hmm. You only have one mom, so it's, she was ninety eight, so she's quite old, and she was in an old age home. Um, and she was, you know, for 98, she was not in terribly bad shape. But my, but as soon as this got bad, when was it in March? My, yeah. my, 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 my sister and I took her out of that and brought her to my sister's house in Bloomington, Indiana. And then about two weeks afterwards, they locked down those places. Yeah. Yep. That was smart. That was yeah. smart. You saw yeah, that. Yeah, we, we 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 got her out just in time. That's good. And then we had a very nice, uh, oh, almost almost a full year, where my sister and I were taking care of my mom, and it was in some ways a, a, a in some ways a, a, a in some ways a lovely year. Yeah. Because, you know, I got closer to her and as she declined, we were helping her and so on. Well, that's really good. I mean, especially if you consider what would have happened if you hadn't been able to spend that time with her. I mean, that, that would have been. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, it's an increasing problem, of course, that uh, life expectancies have gotten very high, mm-hmm. which is a great thing. I mean, yeah. At at I, I I'm 78, so I'm very much in favor of long life expectancies. <laughs> uh, but um, uh, it it uh, it does create this um, this problem of care for old people. Yeah, yeah. And I must say, as a as a new uh, women, new a new uh, a woman, the burden of care falls disproportionately on women. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is definitely a problem to deal with. It's better than the alternative of just people being dead. Just but it throwing is. them out on the street. Yeah. Yeah. Throwing them out on the street. Exactly. Um, well, this was, I mean, this was a really fantastic and eye-opening discussion about the supply chain or as we're going to call it the supply uh, dance. I like that better actually supply <laughs> dance. We're going to, we're going to coin that term. Yeah. Usually, that's, I think dance is a very nice, nice, metaphor uh yates the great irish poet ends one poem with uh, oh body swayed to music a brightening glance how can you know the dancer from the dance it's a beautiful line and the beauty of calling it a dance is we might get more people on the left to support it because it sounds like a fun, <laughs> it's a dance. It's not a chain. It sounds chain nice. Sounds, it's uh, it's uh, a, the communists yeah. want to break the chains, right? Like, you know, yeah, well, that's we're right, talking, right. We're, you know, but if it's a dance, well, that's fun. Everyone loves dancing. Yeah, so yeah. this was a great discussion. They, they, I, uh, they, 
the these socialists want to stop the dance, stop the music. No, 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 exactly. no. Exactly, exactly. So this is usually when I get a uh, have a chance, give my my guests a chance to have the last word. Tell us how they can, uh, you know, stay in touch with uh, all the stuff you're doing. You're retired, so are you writing new books? Like, what are you doing now? What? what oh, is, like mad! I've written uh, since I retired of five years ago, or now it's six. I've written about I don't know about eight new books, and so the best way to get get get, get in touch with me is my website. Deirdre, it's my name, Deirdre McCluskey. You have to spell my weird first name, Irish spelling, correctly. Think of the word weird and spell it that way. D-E-I-R-D-R-E. Deirdre, Deirdre McCluskey. Uh, dot org and there I am. Actually, if you, if you just um, uh, uh, go on the internet, you'll find me fairly fast. Okay, well, well, thank you so much for for joining us. So, deirdremccloskey.org. Uh, I just yep. put that in the uh, in the show notes so everyone that's watching can see that. Uh, deirdremccloskey.org and to read all of your books that are coming up. Uh, Deirdre, thank you so no, much. No, no, don't read, don't, don't read the books. Buy the books. Buy the books and then read them. Well, yeah, reading don't, is optional. I don't care if you read them, buy them. Buy the books. <laughs> reading is optional. I mean, listen, how, how, how much better can you show people how smart you are than having 24 books behind you? You didn't have to read them. They're just there. And people go, what are these books? Oh, these books are about economics and, and, yeah. and, and, uh, and feminism and, and history and literature. They're great books. They're by Deirdre McCoskey. And people go, oh, great. Well, what's your favorite part? Oh, what well, my favorite part is just how brilliantly they were written. No one's going to question you. Why didn't read it either? So, so go buy the books. Buy all 24 of them. Uh, DeirdreMcCloskey.org. Deirdre, thank you so much for coming on. You were, you were a fantastic guest. Okay, dear. I've enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Just stick around because I'm going to talk with you during the outro. Uh, Folks, thank you so much for uh, joining us for this episode of My Fellow Americans. This is usually where I tell you to come visit me this coming weekend, wherever I'm going to be. But I'm going to be at home. Don't don't come visit me at home. I'm staying (laughs) home. I'm on vacation. But are you traveling a lot, dear? Every weekend, I'm in a different place. Every weekend, they have. Why uh, is I'm, that? There are you. Are you speaking at different places, or what? I'm I'm speaking at uh, conventions. I'm speaking okay. at. Uh, uh, last weekend, I did uh, the Libertarian Party of Colorado's convention. Uh, oh, yeah. I visited a, a homeless camp with a, a nonprofit that's helping the homeless out in Denver. Good uh, for you. The weekend before, I was in Fresno, California. They keep me busy. Uh, for someone who's retired, I sure do a heck of a lot, uh, three to five <laughs> days a week. So, But this weekend, no. This weekend's Memorial Day weekend. No one wanted to do anything okay. with me anyway. Okay. So everyone uh, uh, do that. But tomorrow, uh, Thursday at 8 p.m., uh, come right back here for the Writer's Block. Uh, where Matt Wright is interviewing I don't know who, but tune in and you can see. And then come right back here for Tuesday night uh, for the Muddy Waters of Freedom, where Matt Wright and I parse through the week's events like the the sweet little, uh, I don't know, children that we are. And then come right back here next Wednesday, same spike place, same spike time for another fantastic episode of My Fellow Americans. Folks, thanks so much for tuning in. I'm Spike Cohen, and you are the power. God bless, guys. <laughs>